Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you news from Japan, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right winger from South Africa. Starting out in Japan, Japan might be banning the Moonies, that is the Unification Church, which has a more complicated name that changes every once in a while. The Unification Church, so-called the Moonies because their founder is a South Korean man whose surname is Moon, are a Christian, sort of para-Christian cult, basically. They've been operative in South Korea and throughout much of the rest of the world since the 1950s and 60s, when their founder, you know, like any other new Christian movement, says like, oh, you know, I got some new information about how to be a good Christian and some new information from, you know, my buddy Jesus Christ. The Moonies are known primarily for their mass ceremonies, like having mass weddings where hundreds or even thousands of people get married all at once. They're also involved in a number of business and money laundering adjacent scandals. However, in this case, the Moonies might be banned from Japan because of their involvement in the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo last year. Investigations into the organization over false fundraising schemes and platforms, as well as their connection to this murder, mean that Japan might be essentially removing their status as a protected religious organization, which Japanese law says that you can do if the organization has shifted from being primarily religious to having some other, like, socially detrimental function. Moving on to Brazil, this is a story that, honestly, I didn't really know how far it was going to go, but it turns out that it might be going pretty far. Bolsonaro, the former president of Brazil, is possibly facing a criminal conviction for jewelry fraud. Yeah, honestly, I hadn't been covering this because it seemed like, you know, like a sort of tabloidy type thing, but here we are. Jair Bolsonaro was apparently involved in a jewelry fraud ring and an embezzlement scheme when he was the president of Brazil. Apparently, it would work like this. Bolsonaro and his friends would receive untaxed, expensive gifts in Brazil. So like, you know, at the presidential palace, either some visiting foreign dignitary or a big business person or somebody like that would show up and give him a gift, like an extremely expensive set of earrings or a set of luxury watches or other jewelry, right? In Brazil, this, uh, this scandal is essentially known as Jewelry Gate. That's what its title would translate to in English. And they would get these pieces of jewelry, you know, these luxury watches, other small, expensive consumer goods, and then fly them into the United States without declaring them. They would fly them into the United States on the Brazilian presidential jet, and just sort of like walk in because of their diplomatic status. And then they would sell them in the United States for a profit in dollars. And that is money laundering, just like straight up. That's just an illegal act. You, you're not allowed to do that, both in the United States and Brazilian law. This is directly connected, actually, to his political involvement in the production of the sale of fake COVID documents. That's another part of this, of a very similar connected scandal, all of which involved the testimony of his former aide, Mauro Cid, who has been talking with Brazilian police officers 
for quite some time. Apparently, he gave as much as 24 hours total of testimony just last week. It seems likely that Cid is cooperating with the Brazilian police in order to potentially pursue like an actual arrest of Bolsonaro for this kind of stuff. And like, this is the kind of thing that might actually land the guy in jail in a way that, you know, having been involved in planning a coup might take a little bit longer. The fact is, though, that Sid was just this sort of like gopher for a lot of this stuff. So if he's talking about Jewelry Gate, he might just be talking about everything. Moving on to the United States, there have been increased obvious links between pro-life extremists and the extreme far right. A conference is going to be held in Dallas, Texas later this year that's called NATAL, N-A-T-A-L. And the supposed purpose of this event is to protest against and warn against the fact that birth rates are declining all throughout the world. Apparently, they seem to think that it is a bad thing that we're not, you know, on track to hit like, I don't know, 20 billion people or something, like as if that was the goal. But of course, if you heard what I said, and it's a, it's a, it's a conference about declining birth rates that's being held in Dallas, Texas in the year 2023, you get exactly one guess whose birth rates they're concerned about. Yes, it turns out that this organization, this event, is hosting well-known white supremacist eugenicists. That means that these are people who believe that declining birth rates among white people are diluting the power and like virility of the white population in the United States and in Western Europe. Continuing on with more Trump-related news, in the United States, Enrique Tarrio, the former leader of the Proud Boys, the largest fascist organization in the United States, has gotten a major conviction for his involvement in the attempted coup in the United States on January 6th, 2020. Tarrio was sentenced to 22 years in prison for his involvement in this attempted coup. Now, notably, Enrique Tarrio was not there. He was not on Capitol Hill on January the 6th. In fact, he was in a hotel room in Baltimore. But he was acting as a sort of like general slash leader type. The reason he was not physically there was that he had been expelled from the District of Columbia just a couple days earlier because he had been involved in burning a Black Lives Matter flag at a historically black church in the district. And that made him get kicked out. So he couldn't show his face because he knew that he would get, uh, get removed very quickly. And so instead, he stayed away. He stayed out of the fray and was directing people via cell phone and via radio and via other internet communications. 22 years is the longest sentence that anybody has gotten so far for their involvement in the attempted coup. Prosecutors sought a sentence of 33 years, but still again, 22 years is the longest that anybody else has ever gotten. Two other big players in the Proud Boys, guys named Pizzola and Nordian, also got some sentences last week. They got 10 years each for assaulting police officers and for smashing windows on Capitol Hill as part of their involvement in the coup. Now, Tario's conviction is an extremely interesting one because amongst the people on the extreme right, and even amongst the people in the Proud Boys today, Tario now has a reputation for having been a pigeon, you know, for having like snitched to the federal government regarding his involvement in the coup. There was a lot of concern that he might get some sort of like deal and that that might mean that he was selling out people higher up than him, you know, people like Roger Stone or even potentially Donald Trump or Steve Bannon, some of the like real string pullers behind this attempted coup. The fact that Tario did get this big conviction, you know, maybe 
Does it mean that he didn't actually turn on anybody? Or does it mean that he did and this was the best he could get? You know, 22 years instead of 50. I don't know. Continuing on to plans conducted by former President Donald Trump. Donald Trump and his allies are organizing something that they call Project 2025. This is an initiative run by the Heritage Foundation, a long-standing right-wing think tank in the United States that was founded in the 1970s and really came to prominence during the Reagan administration. Project 2025's goal is to produce a cadre of extremist right-wing potential government employees who could swoop in and take federal government jobs when Trump wins in 2024, right? That's their plan, right? Trump wins in 2024, and as he promises, he guts the federal government, right? He just fires a bunch of people. He rescinds executive orders that allow federal employees to collectively bargain. He eliminates their unions and just, like, fires a bunch of people. He would then need to replace at least some of those people, at least in the interim, while he winds down the power of the federal government, which, again, is his claimed goal. And he would be able to give a bunch of nice jobs to Trump supporters. That's the purpose of Project 2025. This is essentially a plan to end the normal democratic and rule of law and functioning of the government in the United States, right? A way to completely shift over the entirety of the executive branch all at once to eliminate most paid staff members and people who have been working in the federal government in nonpartisan capacities for an extremely long time. This is a pretty disturbing thing. And if it actually comes to pass, it might be one of the most significant things that Donald Trump would do in his second term. Finally, moving on to one of Trump's biggest potential opponents, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is now known to be working with Moms for Liberty, a far-right pressure group whose goal is to take over local and school government in order to enshrine right-wing politics and especially to oppose gender-affirming care and the respect of LGBTQ rights and just the existence of queer people in general. Moms for Liberty's MO is to try to take over, like I said, local and school government by having people run for, you know, city council and then having people run for school board in order to ban books that depict sexuality or queerness in any capacity from schools. That is, you know, to ban sexuality of any kind other than the specific and only one that they endorse, which is, you know, white suburban procreative nuclear families. Moms for Liberty is recognized as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center for this conduct and for their extremely queer-phobic behavior and politics. Ron DeSantis has appointed their co-founder to the Florida State Ethics Commission, a sign that he not only thinks that they're ethical, but that he wants to work with them, right? You know, that he's willing to appoint them in political positions. One can only imagine the nightmare of him working with them if he were to be the president of the United States in 2025, which is extremely unlikely. Again, I, I, I think it's completely, almost almost certainly not going to be the case that he is going to get the nomination. But, you know, it's a possibility. Last thing I'm going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Hendrik Verwoerd, a prominent South African apartheid prime minister. Verwoerd was born in the Netherlands in 1901, making him South Africa's only foreign-born prime minister. 
However, his family moved to South Africa very shortly after his birth in 1903 because of his father's religious and racist conviction about the mission of the Boers, that is the Dutch-descended white South Africans, and white people in South Africa in general. These Boers had just recently lost a war with the United Kingdom which ended their independence from British South Africa. So Verward's father moved the family around for missionary and religious work. You know, they lived in various places in South Africa and also in Rhodesia for a time. Verward did extremely well in school. He was a social scientist and eventually did doctoral work in psychology and sociology. He was an extremely powerful and successful academic. He got big postdocs in Germany in the 1920s during the rise of Nazism. He also met his wife there. She was a German national. In 1928, he returned to South Africa as a chaired professor, again in sociology and psychology. Essentially, in academic terms, the guy made it. As a professor in South Africa, he joined right-wing organizations, including the Broterbund, which was a racist organization of Dutch-descended, that is, uh, Afrikaner, South African people. He also joined the National Party in 1937, where he became a successful ideologue and propagandist for white privilege and power. He was even accused of flirting with open Nazi support during World War II, again in the United Kingdom's colony of South Africa. Also, while a professor, he joined other professors who were racist in protesting against Jewish immigration to South Africa. In 1948, the Nationalist Party, of which he was a member, gained power in the country, and Verward joined the Senate of South Africa and eventually became the sinister-sounding Minister of Native Affairs. In 1950, he held this position until 1958. As Minister of Native Affairs, Verward presided over essentially the creation of the South African apartheid system, including playing an instrumental role in passing legislation that created racial registration in the country, that created a system of internal passports, and also severely limiting educational opportunities for black people in South Africa and mixed-race people in that country. Verward continued these policies as prime minister starting in 1958, and also saw South Africa's secession from the British Empire such that it became an independent republic. He attempted to have South Africa remain in the Commonwealth, a community of states that used to be part of the United Kingdom's empire, but this was rejected by Canada and India because they were fucking racists, right? Because South Africa was a racist country and India and Canada opposed the uh, uh, you know, membership of such an openly racist country in the Commonwealth. As Prime Minister, Verward presided over the isolation of South Africa as a racist apartheid state. This include it being shunned from the United Nations, being removed from a lot of Olympic and other international games ceremonies, and also arms trade embargoes even from the United States and the United Kingdom, yes, in the 1960s. Verward eventually got what was coming to him on the 6th of September when he entered the parliamentary building of South Africa and was assassinated by a man named Dmitry Tsvindas, who was a longtime anti-racist activist in South Africa, that is both the country South Africa and also the wider region of South Africa. Tsvindas stabbed Verward multiple times. Verward was taken to the hospital, but it was too late, so he died of stab wounds. This week in history, the 6th of September, 1966. So, 
Verward, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. I'm also on Twitter at fascism15. And I am on blue sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C, 15 mins of fash. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.